Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome back to Forma, a podcast that features conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and leaders that are carefully contemplating the nature and practice of classical education and Christian community. I'm David Kern. Today's episode is actually a re-air. A while back, probably a little more than a year ago, I spoke with our good friend Christine Perrin about teaching poetry and uh, bringing the poetry into the classroom, about some of the fears that can come along with, with trying to teach it well, the desire to, to have students who love it, to share your own love of it with your students, and um, sometimes to to try to discover a love of it while you're, while you're teaching it as well. We talked about a number of things related to that. And I wanted to re-air that episode because the newest issue of our magazine, of Forma, is the poetry issue. It's coming out this fall. We're finishing it up now. We're finishing up the editorial process, and it's going to go to layout soon. And then this October, it's going to be mailing out to you. If you are not signed up for this issue, which you can get for free, you can head over to formajournal.com. Subscribe there. We do have some news, though, because we are actually turning Forma into a quarterly. So you'll be able to subscribe for that. It's $4 a month or $39 a year. If you want to save to get two months free, you can, you can sign up for the annual subscription. You can also give this as a gift in either of those two, um, two amounts. The subscription, though, is not just for the journal. You will get all four copies of the journal. But we also will have a members-only, a subscribers-only weekly email digest that will feature bonus essays, interviews, and reviews. And plus, it will give you access to the digital edition of every issue, including the archives of past issues. If you would like to learn more about this, you can head over to formerjournal.com and click the subscribe button. Again, it's $4 a month, so that's the cost of, like, what, a latte at Starbucks? Or it's $39 a year, and that gives you two months free. We also will still have one free issue, and that issue will go out in November, and it will be an annual compilation issue. So we're going to take some of the things uh, from each of those four quarterlies, as well as from the former website and the email list, and we're going to put them into a, um, a version that we're going to give up for free. So if that's the version that you want, if you just want to get the free one, you can still get that, um, and you can maintain your current status uh, on the current mailing list. But if you want to get the subscription, head over to formerjournal.com and subscribe. But as I said, the next issue is the poetry issue. We've got content in there on iambic pentameter, on sonnets, on poetry and Homer. The issue is just full of great content, and we are really excited to bring that to you. So uh, if you have not signed up for that, you can go over to our website, um, and you can make sure that you're subscribed to the free issue. And then, of course, like I said, we'd certainly appreciate any kind of other subscription that you'd like to sign up for. Before I send you over to my conversation with Christine Perrin, though, which is a re-air from the old Quiddity show, I just want to say a word from our friends over at the Azusa Pacific Honors College. They prepare the next generation of Christian leaders 
through a great book's course of study that emphasizes faith, wisdom, and virtue. Honor students at Azusa Pacific enjoy several benefits, including an honor scholarship, small Socratic-style classes, a curriculum with no secondary textbooks, no exams, and no busy work, exemption from general education courses, access to honors housing, and free trips to world-class arts experiences across Southern California. If this sounds interesting to you, or you think it might sound interesting to a student in your home or in your classroom, you can head over to apu.edu slash honors. And again, you can learn more about the Honors College at Azusa Pacific University by heading over to apu.edu slash honors. All right, without further ado, this is my conversation from a while back with Christine Perrin about teaching poetry. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Okay, Christine. Poetry. Poetry. Before, before I ask my first question, um, can you tell us a little bit about what your role, like what you do in, in the world of poetry? Um, mm-hmm. You're a teacher at Messiah College, is that right? Professor? I, yes, I teach at Messiah. Um, not just poetry, but um, that was certainly my door into the teaching world. Okay. Um, I actually started teaching when I was um, in college. I just walked okay. down the street to the local high school in the city of Baltimore and said, can I teach? Because I felt so happy about mm. what I was learning and I wanted to share it with people. Mm. And since then, what I've really found is that the teaching part is what puts a special kind of pressure or atmosphere around a poem, hmm. um, you can love it by itself. You can memorize it. You can think about it, live your life around it. But when you talk about it with other people and when you gaze at it together with all those intelligences in the room, just people willing to show up, it doesn't have to be brilliant poetry people, you know, hmm. um, something happens. It yields to that pressure. Hmm. And I think I, I learned that in college um, so anyway, teaching, I teach poetry to college students, but I've taught to lots of ages. Um, when my kids were going to a classical school, um, every year starting in kindergarten, I volunteered in their classroom hmm. and I just went and would teach poetry, um, hmm. uh, you know, and, and basically really did it for most of their 13 years in school. Just um, for the love of it? Yeah. Um, and the love of the kids? <laughs> It started out because I wanted them to love it. Yeah. And I knew they might not get it otherwise. I wasn't sure what they would get. But then later what it turned into was I loved talking about it with minds that were at these different stages, mm. you know. So kindergartners were noticing certain things. And so yeah. I just love the curiosity of exchange. Um I also uh write poetry. Mm. Um and have a couple of people who help me, you know, give me feedback. We argue about things in my poems and their poems, so we help each other. Um, teach a young writer's workshop in the summers at Messiah for mm. ninth through 12th graders. And from time to time have had a chance to teach homeschoolers um, one-on-one or one-on-two or, you know, in smaller groups. Mm. Um and I teach my niece who's homeschooled um, and lives in Egypt. We Skype okay. every week. Oh, nice. So, nice. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. I textbook. Just, I also wrote a textbook on it because I so hmm. much want people to have access. Um, trying to think. I think that's about my 
That's all. Contact. <laughs> so, um, and there is the textbook, is that the one that's available through Classical Academic Press? It is, yes. And what's that called? The Art of Poetry. Okay. So if somebody wants to get their hands on that at the end of the show, they can head over to classicalacademicpress.com and find yeah. it there. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So I think as this is a good segue to a question about teaching poetry, since you're talking about the different ways that you teach. Um, I think I've experienced this as a teacher where I love a poem and I want to bring it to my class and I taught juniors and seniors. I want to bring it to those kids and I want to help them love it. Mm. But then there's, there's a lot of anxiety about how to approach that because either you're anxious that you don't know the poem well enough, you don't know the author well enough, you don't know poetry in general well enough, you're not yeah. a good enough teacher. <laughs> um, your kids, or a lot of the kids that I was teaching um, were not, some of them liked poetry more than others, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And then others knew it more than others. But there's a lot of anxiety that can come with teaching a poem that you love. And how do you... Um, First of all, why do you think that teaching poetry leads to that kind of anxiety in a way that maybe teaching a novel doesn't? At least that was the way it was for me. And maybe I I would think I'm not the only person who feels that way. It's interesting because I also have a lot of anxiety about teaching novels because Mm. they're so long and there's so much going on. And I sometimes have trouble knowing how to break them down and give them the time they need and Mm. such. Um, But... Yes, absolutely. I have myself have anxiety for just the reasons that you're describing. Um, I think there's two brands of it. Uh, the one is, I love this. It matters so much to me. I want you to love it. I'm afraid you won't. I'm afraid all you won't love it because of me. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, that's the worst. It's the worst. It's like you want to share something and you get in the way of it. Mm. Um, And actually, I often, that is my prayer in teaching, that I won't get in the way of these things that I love so much, you know, because I don't feel like I'm the master in any way. I feel like the poems are Mm. or the literature is. Um, So the other fear is that you won't know something. And um, I think... um, both of them are worth dispelling. Um, and there, are, I think there are some really, some good, easy ways to dispel that. Um, one is um, just to think about what it means to know in relationship to poetry. I think we've mm. really forgotten that poetry is so much addressing our bodies. It's addressing our hearts. Um one of the things that we all love about Tolkien is that his characters are always stopping and kind of sounding out their hearts hmm. in order to help them make a decision. My heart tells me, you know, they're often saying things like that. Hmm. That's interesting. And I think um, I would say that in terms of poetry, your heart and your body tell you things that are very, very important, that are the starting point for poems. And if you get too much bound up in those things that are important and can be pleasurable, but are lower order concerns in terms of the poem, they're farther down the line. Um, You know, it's like if you wanted to convince me to like cars, you wouldn't start out by talking about all the different particular ways that different engines worked. You know, you would start out by saying, well, what colors do you like? And what, what, 
shapes do you like? And when did you have a good ride last? And you know what I mean? Those kinds of larger questions that start at the entry point, that start at the gateway, that start at the threshold. Hmm. And so I think everyone's equipped to walk into the threshold of the poem. And if you love a poem, you're even more equipped. And that equipment of love shouldn't be discounted. And I think we're really used to kind of saying, well, I just like this a lot. I don't really know that much about it. But I think liking something a lot, loving something, is a very deep form of knowing and one that can be trusted. Um, And as long as you're not trying to, like, for instance, I'll just give you an example. Emily Dickinson's really hard. She's She's thorny, she's dense, she's complex, um, she's obscure. Whenever I start with students with her, I always say to them, let's just see what we can figure out. Let's not worry about what we can't understand because there's so much in Dickinson we can't understand. There's so much I can't understand, you know? And I have college professor colleagues who won't teach a Dickinson, because she's so hard, you know, Hmm. but that's the wrong approach. The right approach is to say, what can we get? So I think showing up with heart and body. um, And the first part of that is reading aloud. Yeah, Um, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. So before we talk about reading aloud, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot. um, Do we need to just think about it as um, about about discovery, about um, a form of discovery, um, like discovering little bits and pieces of a mystery, as opposed to thinking about it from a scientific in a scientific way, where there's a, you're trying to identify certain kinds of like laws. And is so is is it instead of looking at it in a scientific fashion, as if it's something that can be dissected? Are you suggesting then that we should be looking at it um, as if it's a mystery or a a journey that we're just we've learned things as we go one bit at a time i love that david that's a, such a good question in fact as you're talking i'm thinking of sea diving i'm <laughs> <laughs> to imagine you know the search for the poem as a dive you know where you go to one level and you go to the next level and you look around and you've got these goggles on and you're breathing oxygen you know because you can't really breathe that water um I would say that it's not that the scientific doesn't matter at all. Um, But again, that that's much farther down the road and that Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right, that we begin with poems. We begin in discovery. We begin in immersion. We begin in direct contact. And if we start by saying, what's the rhyme scheme? What's the metaphor? What's the family of images? What's the meter? Um we begin at the wrong end of inquiry Hmm. so that there's a, you know, it's not that that inquiry doesn't matter. And I, even in art of poetry, I teach the elements because it's a really good way to frame your conception of what you're looking for. You do have to know what to look for. Um, and you want to get there eventually because when you love something, you do want to kind of dwell on the particulars and you want to know more particulars but you have to become attached to it first. Hmm. And um, mm-hmm. that isn't to say that every single poem you'll always get attached to. You know, there are going right. to be times as well when, as Lewis says, you know, you begin kind of with the hard labor and your rewards are um, maybe not um, 
the rewards that are inherent to the endeavor. So yeah, for instance, yeah. as a teacher, it's very important to be um, engaging, um, to make, uh, when I have students, sometimes I'll have them just memorize the poem before we even talk about it and stand hmm. up and do motions and um, I'll be excited about it, you know, so that they can be rewarded by my response to them or I'll get them to say things that reward each other for being engaged, you know. So I do think that compensation in the experience is important, but that the compensation that we start with is different than the one that we get to hmm. later on down the road. Hmm. And we do have to start with rewards. Hmm. Um, sometimes the rewards are just how that feels in my ear or hmm. in my mouth, yeah. you know, like, ooh, ooh, I like to say that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I love your question. That's a beautiful question. It's more of sea diving for a lost trunk of treasure than it is um, hmm. uh, raising fish in a hatchery hmm. where you're testing the chemical composition of the water and the food that you're putting in. And, you yeah. Know. Well, I think, you know, one of the metaphors that we sometimes talk about around here is sometimes when you're teaching a novel, for example, or, or put it this way, like if, you, if you're going to a pond and you mm-hmm. want your student or you want to know more about what a bullfrog is like in the swamp, then you probably wanted to spend a lot of time around a bullfrog seeing how they live in their environment than taking the bullfrog home and opening it up and looking at its organs. You can, you can do, if you do that, you're going to see what a bullfrog has and what makes up its parts, but that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to know kind of what a bullfrog is inherently like what makes it being being yeah 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 and i mean <clears throat> I, they're both really valid methods of inquiry mm-hmm. but um but we start somewhere we start walking down the country road and having the frog jump on our path yeah and hearing it and touching it and mm. you know sure you know shrinking away from it all those things happen first yeah. Um, I wouldn't want to meet it first under a knife. Um, I remember um, wishing that when I grew up, I wished that my brother could teach me science because he ended up studying science and the way he taught it was so much related to our lives and, you know, his own curiosity, his own interest. You know, he would want to look at things and talk about them and say different things that he had learned about them. And I, I just thought, wow, I would have enjoyed that so much more if I had started there hmm. um, as opposed to in a textbook. Well, you know, I have a, th- I have a three-year-old. Uh, he's almost four. I feel like he comes up. One of my kids comes up in almost every podcast I record. Um, <laughs> but I guess that makes sense when most of them are about teaching. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, he, you know, when I watch him just being outside so much of what he's doing is, you know, he wants to look at the tomato or the tomato plant in the garden or you want, he's like sitting there squatting down, looking at a, some roly poly or chasing some bug around or something like that. And he doesn't really have any interest in, you know, opening I mean, he might pull their legs off, I guess, but you know, <laughs> he doesn't have any interest in, in he's learning to love them and who, what they are and how they exist just by mm-hmm. being around them. And it's not, he doesn't care so much about the, the organs of the, 
the frog or whatever or the lizard and when he sees the lizard that's that's the end of the next 20 minutes or nothing else is going to happen <laughs> um what's skeletal system right you know? yeah but someday he will yeah and he's a lot more likely to want to to know that it's going to feel like less drudgery if he cares ahead of time already yeah. so let's say you are teaching a class i mean i know that when you teach a poem you take a different approach depending on the age of the students and the, the kind of experience and things like that but let's take kind of a standard class and let's say you're teaching ninth just a high school you're teaching high schoolers and okay. say you're teaching a poem like uh robert frost after apple picking okay. which is actually one of my favorites and i think it's one of my favorites to teach um What's the first thing you're going to do when you come into that class that day? Are you going to have them read after apple picking ahead of time? Or are you going to have their experience be with the poem be the first time when you read it together? And, and what's your approach going to be to this poem? And if you're me, you love this poem mm-hmm. and you don't want to ruin it for them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, often students come in having read it on their own, but I always encourage them to read it aloud for homework or to get together with each other, you know, to make homework fun and do it with each other. Um, then I will have them come into class and we'll read it aloud several times. Um, and I tell them things like, your body is the instrument that's playing this poem. And we can hear three of you read it and it will be different because of the instrument of your body. So, you know, and I, I try to encourage them about reading to, to, to let themselves go. I, I noticed that um, when I started teaching college, that college students um, were very uh, self-conscious about reading aloud. Hmm. Um, my guess is that's not true for homeschooled ninth graders or even classically schooled ninth graders, but yeah. it's very true. It's very common in the world. Um, so reading aloud and trying to get comfortable with that and do that generously and expressively, um, but also in accordance with your own temperament and not necessarily performatively, you know? Yeah. You don't uh, all so need to sound like Laurence Olivier. Right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And, um, then, uh, one thing that I will often have people do is, is respond at first by just repeating lines or phrases or words that they loved. Hmm. Um, you know, and we can do that after each reading or we can do it at the end of all three. Um, but that's remarkably helpful because you don't have to put together something intelligent yet. You know, all you have to do is respond. And so the pedagogy privileges response, just Pure response. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to say the quick thing, you know, that puts it all together. Because people take a while to process poems. And any time that you can give them to do that will help their enjoyment of it, I think. Um, Sometimes you can even have them put it in a commonplace book. You know, you can have them record it, communicating to them that this is important. Um, I'll just make a footnote on this. The most successful thing that I have done this year as a teacher of poetry which was a surprise to me, new thing, was have students, and these are obviously maybe ninth, not ninth grade students for their first time with poetry, but students read a book of poems, a slim volume of poems together aloud hmm. um, in a single sitting, going around the circle with the books open. Um, 
and doing this method of responding almost with a oral commonplace. What you understand about a poet at the end of that, you know, after reading a whole book of their poems and immersing in their head and their language and their rhythms is you will be shocked. I mean, David, you should do it with your dad and your family and, you know, Hmm. you'll be amazed by what you know at the end. Hmm. I mean, you could write the best review of that book that you've ever written. (laughs) Um, And students who've had no exposure to poetry have this happen to them. So it just, it tells, it reinforces again for me that just that process of immersing and as much immersion with the ear, with the mouth, um, with repetition, with memory, um, that's the way in. That's the best thing to do. So I start with as much of that as the class period can stand because sometimes you don't have as much time as you would like. Um, And then I usually have some organized the kinds of questions that I want to ask. Um, If I were homeschooling, I don't know how, you know, and not dealing with a whole group of people that I'm trying to lead, Mm -hmm. I might make it more up to them and their questions. I might make that, I might give them a chance to start with, with their questions and not just points of information, but questions for discussion. Um, uh, I know stopping by woods on a snowy evening so well, um, I know a number of Frost poems. I I know Directive well and Mm -hmm. Birch as well. So after apple picking, I know pretty well, but I'm more familiar with the questions I have about those others. So I might say something um, about stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Um, I might start by just asking just a general question about what, um, what's the conflict here? You know, what's, what's going on? Or a, a larger question like, Who's talking and to whom? Um, or, you know, so those are kind of framing questions that um, give them a, a sort of the wide pegs to put in the ground of what's happening here. Um, or I might say, what's going on with the horse? Um, my little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, you know. Yeah. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there's some stick. Like, why ho- like? The horse seems to have conscious, you know, seems yeah. to be aware in this poem. Why? What's going? You know, so I might ask those kinds of questions to get the conversation going. And then, um, did you want to interrupt at that point? Well, I was just going to ask: At what point do you start? Do you ask questions about um, any kind of narrative that might be happening in the poem? Mm-hmm. Um, so, based on after apple picking, for example, there's kind of a clear. I wouldn't. It's not like a narrative in a traditional sense with a rising action and the climax and all that but mm-hmm. there is obviously something going on and there's there's that's like a narrative that's like a story at what point do you start discussing what what's ha- what like what is actually happening to the poet in the poem Almost a paraphrase even right yeah I love your narrative um i think that you know after you've done this uh, direct contact stuff that I've talked about. Asking a question of what the narrative is is a wonderful question to ask. Okay. Um, and the the only thing is, um, sometimes if you go too quickly to the narrative question, people want to kind of characterize the whole thing. Um, particularly, like after apple picking is kind of a difficult poem. Yeah. And so um, they might be trying to right away talk about the theme. And talk about what it's saying yeah. without having gotten dirty 
you know? And so if I think that it's a, so for stopping by woods on a snowy evening, the narrative is relatively simple right. or dust snow, simple narrative. Right. Um, but after apple picking, directive, birches, complex narratives. So with a more complex narrative, I would wait a little bit before asking that overarching trajectory narrative paraphrase kind of question. And I would start maybe uh, chronologically um, okay. so that they have to kind of, where are we now? You know, mm -hmm. or I would start elementally, you know, okay. as I said, like about the voice or about the, so it's kind of your judgment about whether or not the students are going to be able if you give them a starting point that's too abstract, they might never get into the particulars and build their case or not just their case, but build their understanding. Right. Got it. Okay. But again, I only think that's a problem with after apple picking or with birches or with directive. Yeah. What you yeah. do. How do you, um, you love that poem. How do you start it? Uh, well, I suppose that does depend on the class. The, the group of students and when I'm teaching it and that, and that sort of thing. Um, I think one of the things I like about that poem is that the narrative kind of reveals itself in a way, the more you read it, because for a lot of students, the first time they read it, they don't see that immediately or they don't see how it's, it's almost like a series of abstract images to them combined interspersed with like actual very um that that are i'm trying to think how to say this that are um the yeah and but they're interspersed with there's there's a very tactile sensory thing going on in that poem like the idea of the foot on the um there's a foot on a ladder and he doesn't have shoes on and he talks about how he can feel the 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 bar of the ladder, the imprint of that left on his foot after being up on the ladder ap picking apples all day. So you get that, but the, the narrative kind of reveals itself, I think. So I'm, <clears throat> I think I'm with you. I think you kind of affirmed what I was kind of thinking in that I didn't want to get to it too quickly, but then, because I think that sometimes it does kind of poems like that tend to reveal themselves. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'll have it right here. <laughs> um, I think that's a great poem for yeah. teaching students to think poetically and the way metaphor works um in poems but i always read that poem out loud a lot as you said it's the one that once as i was teaching poetry when i got to that one i kind of didn't know what else to do with it <laughs> but to read yeah. it out loud you know yes. <clears throat> and there was something about it that made me want to teach it that made me want to introduce it and it might have just been that i liked it as a reader and i didn't know a lot when i first started trying to teach it i didn't I had to do a lot of research on it. I didn't necessarily know a lot about the poem, but there was something that just kind of made it mean something to me. And I, I think it was something that's hard to explain. There's kind of a mystery to why we like certain poems, I think, but I brought it to them and we just read it out loud a lot. And I, a lot of them came away liking it. I think there's some kids that came away not liking it, but I don't know that they were going to like anything that year. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good Point. I mean, I love what you're seeing. I, I'm going to pull it up I, on my phone so we both have it. Okay. I think it's what Frost says regularly in his prose that um, we do really need to learn to think metaphorically. We need to think with metaphor. I mean, in fact, he goes so far as to say at one point, all of thought is metaphor. 
Yeah. You know, he as he gets older, he really begins to say essentially if you can't think and speak metaphorically and you can't understand how far to take a metaphor and when to um you know say the metaphor can't um the metaphor ends here. The comparison mm-hmm. ends. It's not a good comparison anymore. Yeah. Um, then you're not educated. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one thing that somebody might hear me quote Frost on that and say, oh, gosh, I knew I couldn't do this. But no, his whole point mm-hmm. is get your head into poems and start thinking like that because it's not something that someone can just teach you propositionally. You have to do it. And that thing that you're saying right now about this poem is you had to do it a lot and you had to do it with the same poem. And the poem kind of led you into itself. Um, the metaphor led you into itself. Yeah. Um, I think what this is, what, what I was trying to say, I think, I, is that it's a poem that's got very tactile, sensory, physical metaphors all throughout that when you add them all together, the poem I think is a little confusing because it's when you add them together, they're saying something abstract which is what I mean. That's what a poem does, but in a way that is very—it's um, not immediately clear, and so you have to spend a lot of time with those metaphors. Some poems, what those—that the abstraction that all those metaphors add up to—is more immediately obvious. That's a good point. And here, it's less immediately obvious. So if you don't kind of revel in the world of those metaphors, and in this case, it, he really is—he's creating this little scene. If you don't revel in that scene that those metaphors make up and just kind of really look at them and think about them and try to smell them and feel them and all those kind of things, then it makes it difficult to, uh, to get to and approach that abstraction. And maybe the snowy stopping, what is it? Stopping in the woods. Um, what is the name of that? What is the actual name of that poem? Stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Okay. Um, it's one of those poems that you, everybody knows, but when you actually say the name, I was thinking it might have been something completely different than what is the actual line. I know. <clears throat> but a poem like that, maybe the metaphors create work to an abstraction or add up to an abstraction that is more readily apparent or more easily, more obviously apparent. Maybe I'm completely wrong about that. But Well, you're saying a couple things that are, are really interesting to me um, um, to back up. Uh, to what you were saying about after apple picking, um, there's a sense in which this one in particular, it leads you in. Um, yes. It leads you wrong by wrong, so to speak, yeah. um, into its knowledge. And if you try to start, it's fairly impenetrable if you try to start with the end. You know, if you try to start with the abstraction. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people do because you get to the end and then everyone says, Wait, what just happened? Right. And so then you start trying to solve that. But it's like you can't solve, I'm just dropped my pen, you can't solve a crime just by looking at the end of it. Or a math problem. Yeah, that's I mean, true. I yeah. love what you explained about poetry. That's great, David. That is so perfect because even stopping with what's on a snowy evening where a kindergartner can tell me, um, well, you know, he wants to stay, but he can't. And he's sad about it, you know? Um, okay, very simple thing, um, but yet what we understand about what it feels like to be in that position, which is all our life, how many days do we wake up and feel that conflict about 
the commitments that we've made and keeping them at some level, you know, whether it's getting to work, staying married, making breakfast, you know, all these things yeah. are really hard for us to do. Mm-hmm. And he fleshes out in this full-bodied way what it feels like to feel that thing that whether it's simple, like I want to stay in the woods or complex, like I want to keep my commitment to marriage. Um, we, he, he shows us how to dwell in that. And so it's not really simple. And if you just start with the conclusion, you don't know that the whole poem, and here's what's so interesting about that scientific aspect that we were talking about. If you understand that basic conflict in that poem of pulling in two directions, one is your kind of your, your appetite and one is your commitment, you know, your mind. Um, uh, then you're so thrilled when you begin to see how the rhyme scheme is working because hmm. the rhyme scheme has this one outcast sound that becomes the rhyme scheme for the next stanza. And so the sounds of all the rhyming words are exactly what's going on in the heart and mind of the speaker. Hmm. And that's a scientific detail that's incredibly pleasurable. Mm-hmm. But it would be stupid, vacuous, inane, if you didn't first understand and and at some level feel the relationship of the conflict he's describing to your life. But then the other thing that I wanted to say about after apple picking that you reminded me of is that Frost is so much more a lover. He loves symbolism. Mm -hmm. He doesn't ever want to just nail things down directly for us. He wants to be suggestive about a figure that he creates in multiple ways, in multiple directions. And so that's why what you're describing of um, solving it the way you have to solve for a math problem, I mean, not exactly the way, but that sense of you could never just start with the answer. You have to build um, when it's complex. And it would be far too abstract if you just started. Part of that is because of Frost himself. He wants to build the symbolic world for us. He doesn't want us to have access. And he even has that one line in um, Directive about, um, I'm just going to read it because it's so great in reference to this. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I need to memorize that one. I do too. I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> I lose it. You know, I don't keep it going long yeah. enough. He, he says um, at the end of that, I have kept hidden in the instep arch of an old cedar at the waterside. A broken drinking goblet like the grail under a spell so the wrong ones can't find it. That's what he does with his poems. Hmm. He keeps their knowledge under a spell so the wrong ones can't find it. Can you read that one more time? Yeah. I have kept hidden in the instep arch of an old cedar at the waterside a broken drinking goblet like the grail under a spell so the wrong ones can't find it. So he's hid this holy grail, um, this goblet to drink out of, and you know, d- drink and and in the end it says drink and be beyond confusion. You know, drink. <laughs> uh, it's this beautiful thing. But in any way, in some ways, it's about his poetry. It's about other things too. Yeah. But it's about his poetry, just like you're describing. He releases to it. Uh, he releases it to us, step by step, and slowly, and image by image, and language by language, rhythm by rhythm, and he. He's keeping it under a spell because he doesn't want us to be able to have that kind of access to its abstraction because the whole thing matters. Hmm. Um, 
So I love what you're saying about after apple picking. I think you're absolutely just right on. Do you want to? Go ahead. Go ahead. Get really sunk into the poem itself. We, we could. <laughs> Should um, we answer a few questions and then try to demonstrate what we're talking about? I, I was going to suggest that, and I know we have a limited amount of time. So, um, yeah. <clears throat> I was I was going to say. I was going to ask you, one of my questions I have written here was, what tips do you have for helping a poem come alive to a group of students? We've already talked a little, little bit about that. Um, we could talk about the nature of metaphor till we're blue in the face and till the sky's not blue anymore. Um, I, ha- I talked to John Hodges this morning, actually, um, about music, and he was talking about how he's more and more coming to believe that, that music is metaphor. Um, and that his understanding of music has grown and evolved and changed as he's begun to think of music as metaphors, you know, uh, harmonies as being metaphor for the Trinity and things like that. Mm. Um, and so that's very higher level stuff as far as music goes. Um, but it's, it's so interesting to have the same. I mean, I would have, you know, I expected to talk about metaphor when talking about poetry, but it's interesting to have both those conversations in the same day in relation to language and music and how, you know, I have my friend Josh Leland. Um, who writes for us sometimes in Cersei, and I think you, you, I think you have met Josh. He always talks about how um, the the metaphors by which we see the world determine so much of who we are. The metaphors you think of when you think of education, like how, what metaphors do you use for your classroom, um, yeah. because that's going to ter- determine how you teach. What metaphor do you think of in terms of your relationship with your spouse or your kids? Or your pet, or your, you know, all the metaphors for the way we think of how we interact with each other determine um, so much of how we live our lives. Tell me yours for those two things. Oh, Um, (laughs) jeez. And for marriage or family. Um, Well, Josh and I always talk about we taught we taught together actually. We both taught English to high schoolers, and we kind of we tried to cooperate as much as we could in our classes. Mm. And when it came to the classroom, we talked a lot about how we can't think of our classes as or we don't believe we can think of our classes as a, in a kind of more of a business metaphor. Um, because if you think of your classes as a business metaphor, then you think of your students. I mean, something has to be a product then, right? Mm-hmm. And so then the students become either the students or the work of art become the product. I would, I would argue that it's the student becomes the product that you're trying to manufacture. And as soon as you begin thinking about your students that way, your relationship with them changes. So I'd say that, <clears throat> I would, you, there's a number of metaphors that you could use for a classroom. I would probably lean towards the idea of, of a farm or something like that. Um, something a little more agricultural. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I think about that a lot and I'm not sure that I'm a hundred percent sold on that, but not every element of it has to be exactly a one-to-one correlation for the metaphor to be something meaningful. That's a Um, cross thing. Mine is bees and honey because it's very sweet, mm. but it takes so much hard work, you know? And you're going to get stung sometimes. And you're going to get stung, yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, you're going to have a hard winter and the hive's going to die and, you know, all kinds of, it's not all sweet. I'll, yeah, that's good. Know? Spoken like a poet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think a lot about the, what my metaphor is for, for, a fam- for family. Mm-hmm. Um, as a father and as a husband, and, mm-hmm. um, it's it's less seasonal. <laughs> um, well, it's seasonal in the this, but the seasons are longer. Like in a school year, you actually go by the seasons, and and the way the seasons change, the actual four seasons 
kind of is how your school year operates. You st- we still operate around a very specific seasonal form in our classrooms most of the time. Yeah. Our families aren't the same way. The seasons are longer. The seasons have to do with the kid kids growing and each you going through different seasons of their lives and their experiences and their growth. And, you know, you have good seasons and bad seasons as, yeah. as a couple, as, as a husband and wife, as, you know, your kids, we talk about kids going through phases all the time, right? It's just a phase. <laughs> Hopefully he'll grow out of this phase. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, but I think that the farm metaphor there works well. And maybe I just read too much Wendell Berry, but the farm metaphor still works there. Speaking of which, yeah, I was going to say happy birthday, 81 today. Um, uh, but I think the metaphor still works because you have to be, you have to be patient. There's a lot, you have to plant seeds and you have to water them and you have to wait and you have to pay yeah. attention to them and you have to let them be the plants that they are. Yeah. So I've got, like I said, I, I have two boys and I have to, th- I can, if one of them's, they're not both tomatoes, right? Right. You know, one of them maybe is the cucumber plant and one of them's the tomato and they take a different kind of care. And sometimes yeah. I have, you th- you wish that your kids would just one size fits all and you could do the same things. Yeah. I wish that the things that I do for Coulter that help him grow and would also work for Jeremiah. I know. And, uh, sometimes, you know, Jeremiah is a year, he's 14 months younger and he's, there's a lot of ways where he does things a lot better than his older brother, you know, even though he's yeah. only two and a half and his older brother's almost four. Um, and I wish those things that he does well, I don't know what we did to make him do those things well and we didn't do them with Coulter. And so yeah, it has doesn't have that much to do with us as far as that goes, I imagine. Oh, but yeah. <clears throat> but I think the... What's that? <laughs> might have to do with Coulter. Yeah, and having an older. Yeah. And also the younger ones, you know, they interact with each other. They see, the younger one sees things, sees us interacting with his older brother in a way that the, old, that the older one didn't have to see. Exactly. So. Yeah. But yeah, we there's so many. Uh, that's a that's a very open ended question you just asked me. <laughs> well, I think it would be great for our listeners to um, ask themselves that question and yeah. ask their families that question and their classrooms, um, their homeschooled children, or whoever is listening, because um, I agree with Josh a hundred percent. In some ways, the quality of our life is almost. Um, is so largely beholden to the quality of our metaphors. How we conceive of a thing almost is what that thing is. I mean, there are realities outside of our conception. Hmm. But yet, on the other hand, the way we perceive it matters a lot. Yeah. And the way we perceive... I just had a different question about the the different the nature the differences between the words perceive and conceive, but that's a different conversation for a different day. Yeah. But the way we um, conceive or perceive of our relationships in particular, like what are the metaphors for the relationships we have with people who yeah. are important to us, or or especially for whom we have a th- or over whom we have authority, mm-hmm. the kind of metaphors we use there, I think, determine a lot about. The, the quality of that relationship and therefore the quality of our lives, as you put it. Or even if we, we lack metaphors, mm. it means we haven't thought about it, mm. you know? Um, that's the other thing I would say just about the pleasure of the poetry classroom is that it's, it's so important as you read poems. I just heard from a mother this week who told me that she was one of those people that hated poetry and was, and was afraid of it. She loved music and, and literature, but not poetry. And she, um, 
started reading Robert Frost at lunchtime to our kids. And it really changed them. Hmm. Um, and I think I would just say that for one thing, um, just starting anywhere, starting anywhere and sharing it with anyone <laughs> um, is such a it's such an easy point of entry. And then as you be as you move forward, you come to share that. So it's not just up to you to love it, but other people latch on to things and you see their pleasure. And, and then as a body of people, a community, you start using that language together. You know, I'm sure that you have certain phrases from after apple picking that you at least say to yourself inside your head. Um, or images that I see. Images, yes. Um, and I understand the world by this language. And I say it with to my kids, you know, and I'll sometimes I won't even remember how to say it without the poem, the image or the language. You know, I'll have yeah. to have my child remind me <laughs> what it meant before we started talking through this yeah. language. But I, I think that's one of the things it gives us. It gives us a shared vocabulary. It gives us a shared family of images, a shared garden of delight. Um, and we can have access to that even if we aren't super intelligent about that poet or the context or all the elements of poetry or the point in history. Hmm. You can have access without all that. The, the access increases as you increase those circles of knowledge, but you don't need them to begin. Hmm. Hmm. Um, do you have a few minutes to, to put this into practice or do we need to do that for another show? Absolutely. Oh, no, no, no. Practice is very important. Okay. How do you want to do this? Um, do you want to choose after apple picking because you love it so much? Or do you think it, we should choose a simpler one? I was going to say maybe we should choose a simpler one and maybe even one that we're not both, like that neither of us have a ton of knowledge about so we could go through okay. the process of discovery. Okay. Um, there's one that I haven't spent that much time with um, called Fireflies in the Garden. It's only six lines. Okay, perfect. Um, do you want to... I'm Googling it right now. <laughs> Okay, great. Firefly. There we go. I'm sure Poetry Foundation or someone has it. Yes. There it is. <laughs> um, I'll read it and then you read it. How okay. about that? Sounds good. Fireflies in the garden. Here come real stars to fill the upper skies. And here on earth come emulating flies that... Though they never equal stars in size, and they never and they were never really stars at heart, achieve at times a very star-like start. Only, of course, they can't sustain the part. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah, that's nice. <laughs> that that poem is like a nice glass of wine. Like that's the, that's the sensory response that I, I felt like my brain was doing something similar to what you have when you have a really delicious first sip of a really good wine that you have with like a nice meal. That's the same thing my brain was doing. Oh, you're making me wish that that's what we were doing. <laughs> well, I mean, we could pause this and come back and be doing that. Um, <clears throat> all right, I'll read it now. Okay. <clears throat> After I cough. And it's a wine that's easy to like. Yes. I mean, yeah, yeah, oh, you yeah. Know, pick one. Which one would you pick? It's not some kind I, of 
Dona Paula. Have you had that one? I don't think so. Okay. I have to admit, I'm much more of a. Um, I don't know if I can say this in the air. I'm much more of a like bourbon scotch guy than I am wine. So I'm much more my my expertise is more on that side. The wine is more of a um, mystery to me. Okay. <laughs> Which I actually Basil. am kind of okay with. Basil Hayden. Oh, okay. Now you're now you're speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's yes, that is a good easy one to like. <clears throat> Fireflies in the garden. Here come real stars to fill the upper skies, and here on earth come emulating flies that though they never equal that though they never equal stars in size, and they were never really stars at heart, achieve at times a very star like start, only of course they can't sustain the part. I love the way you read that. There was so much personality in your reading <laughs> emphasize different words than I did. It's funny to and- read a poem for the first time after having just heard someone else, because you know a little bit about it, but you haven't actually had to breathe with it or like produce the words. So when I heard you reading it, I was thinking, oh, I like that emphasis. I'll probably do it that way. But then when I actually was reading it, my, the way I breathe and speak didn't do that. (laughs) Yes. But I loved it because one of the things you did was it's an incredibly dense poem in terms of its sounds and the Mm -hmm. tightness of its Mm -hmm. sound. You know, yeah. um, but you broke that up so it didn't sound quite as formal as it is. Hmm. Um, and I like that a lot. What are some? You, you mentioned the next thing you typically like to do is <clears throat> talk to talk about favorite lines. Mm-hmm. What are a couple lines? That, well, there's only a few couple lines in the whole thing, but. <laughs> um. Well, um, I love upper skies. Um, mm. Um, I like star-like start. Mm-hmm. How about you? I was struck immediately by the idea of sustaining the part. Yes. <clears throat> and I'm not sure why. It felt like a. It was such a. It felt like a new metaphor at the at the end mm-hmm. for what was going on with the rest of the poem. Um, Absolutely. The, the upper yeah. skies is really good. I mean, I love the upper skies emulating flies rhyme there. Um, mm-hmm. The idea of it imitation. It kind of surprises you, too, because you think it's going to be um, couplets, you know, with two, two yeah. rhymes every, two, you know, every line, like skies and flies, blah, 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 blah. But it's three. So skies, flies, sighs, heart, start, part. And mm. that throws you off a little. Um but it's beautiful because, of course, he's talking about emulating, yeah. imitating. And so the fact that he sustains the sounds and more sounds emulate each other rather than fewer. There's only two sounds governing the whole poem in terms of those end rhymes. And that just makes a lot of intuitive sense. And that's an example of something that I observe. But you wouldn't need to observe that to know it was happening. Yeah, yeah. No. You kind of feel it before you, I mean, you, you, the only reason you probably went and, <clears throat> I mean, it's obvious and it's simple in a sense and you're trained and have a lot of experience, but there's a certain extent <clears throat> to which I imagine, um, you would feel that and then go looking for it. Exactly. 
I love that. That's a perfect way to describe poetry, David. That's You just summarized in the most elegant phrase what I was taking 10 minutes to say at the beginning. You just said, right, you would feel it and then go look for it. Yeah, you feel it. And then because you feel it, you start, you go look for what you felt, like for why yeah. you felt that. Yes. What do you think of the, there's two things that we both, or I stumbled on two things. You stumbled on one of them. Mm-hmm. I stumbled on the word real at the beginning for whatever reason. And it might've been, I was in a hurry. And then I believe we both stumbled on the, and they were never really stars at heart part, yes. right? The parenthetical there. So I guess my question is, why do you think we stumbled on that? <laughs> this is so, it's such a great question because of course this is what some like very sophisticated literary theorists talk about, right? Right. These errors we make are not just errors. They're telling us something. But I think it's so interesting the words that we stumbled on were real and really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the subject of the poem. Yeah. Right? The yeah. subject of the poem is this reality and emulation. Um, the real stars and the fireflies. The fireflies are imitating the real stars. Um, Starlight. And even that word very is another form of really, in a sense, you know, real, um, where, um, you know, truth uh, in that sense. This is, it may be meaningful and it may not. Uh-huh. But I think it's interesting that you have, as you mentioned, you have those first three lines that have the same rhyme and the last three have the same rhyme. But the last, the third line and the fourth line where the rhyme switches there, mm-hmm. they both have that they were never thing. They were never there. I don't know if that's, that's probably, it might, it's got to mean something. But though they never equal stars in size and they were never really stars at heart. So that word never kind of bridges those two rhymes. I don't don't know what that means, but it's, it's, it's interesting. Interesting because, of course, that, I mean, what you're pointing out is that that's also the moment at which we don't have the reassurance of that sound at the end, right? For the mm. first time in the poem and the last time in the poem, we don't get the ear comfort of two end words that kind of close the deal, right? Right. So that feeling is, there's a little discord there because of our expectation has been set up to expect that closure. And the thing that it's talking about is actually there's not as much closure as it might seem. And then the same thing is being played out in the rhyme scheme. Yeah. Um, but it's also interesting, like you say, that there are other connections. I mean, there's the word stars and stars, never, never, they, they, a lot of repetition between those two lines. And then, of course, this parenthetical statement, um, you know, as if he's saying, well, you know, they were never really stars. <laughs> you would not know, you know. Yeah. Um, and then he goes back to his more formal statement-like language. A very, achieve at times a very star-like start. Closure, punctuation, yeah. end of poem, right? Yeah. No. Then, like you said, the poem opens up into the whole wide world of meaning. It's not just about fireflies and stars anymore on that last line. Yeah, so you get the first uh, 
five lines, I guess, are one sentence. One sentence. You've got an end stop there, and then you have yeah. the last line as another sentence. Only, of course, they can't sustain the part. Is that a um? They achieve a very at times. Achieve at times. That's an interesting little ad thing. Thing he adds in there at times. Right. Achieve at times a very star-like start. Yeah, he almost de- deconstructs it, right? Or he undoes it. He says, yeah. achieve at times, kind of like that parenthetical statement. Yeah. He wants to qualify everything. He's a logician, this guy. <laughs> you know? Only, of course, they can't sustain the part. Do you, do you feel like... Do you feel like that's a... Um, a hopeful or a hopeless ending? Uh, okay, can we back up for a minute? Sure. Like, I think it's really important. We're talking about stars and fireflies, and you almost can forget that, even though the title says Fireflies in the Garden. Mm-hmm. And so I always like to, just to remind myself, to bring my back myself back into contact with the things themselves. So, mm. okay, we're in the garden. When do fireflies come out? July... Um, so, well, they come out in June, but yeah. depending on the year, they're sometimes gone by July, like, 10th, but yeah. this year they're still around. Yeah. So, hey, it's July. We're in the garden. It's dark. The stars come out at dark. You're sitting back there outside in the humidity, and the stars are out, and then the fireflies are blinking, and the stars are blinking, and the fireflies are blinking, and the fireflies are close to you, and the stars are far away from you. And so I think that that whole setup is so important. Like part of what you were just saying about metaphors that John Hodges was saying, um, that metaphor, he didn't say it quite like this, but I love saying it like this. It's discovering the invisible relations Hmm. among and between things. Hmm. and Which is why the metaphors you use for relationships is... Important. Yeah, important. But see, part of what's so interesting about that is that we think about making a metaphor. I'm going to make the best metaphor. But what that language suggests is actually the whole world is corresponding with itself. In Hmm. other words, we have stars and we have fireflies. And there's a sense in which... I mean, he's making this very metaphysical statement about metaphor and about the world, that the world reproduces, it echoes itself, you know, this beautiful thing. And it's almost as if, you know, like Plato was saying that, that there's this, everything we see is a metaphor for something else. Hmm. And there's an invisible relationship between the whole world and itself. It's all makes sense. It's all coherent. It's all beautifully saying the same thing to us over and over again. Um, But it says it in different ways. So that's one thing that I think of. But then the other thing I think of at the end there in terms of whether or not it's positive is that to me, because now immediately I'm thinking about our humanity and about the fact that there's something in us that wants to be stars but knows that we're fireflies. Um, We want to be grand. We want to be beautiful. We want to be esoteric and lofty and... You know, and sometimes we might achieve it a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit, just at times for a moment. A star-like start. Yeah. And can't you imagine seeing that to somebody? Like now, I'm going to say, David, you know, you had a very star-like start that time you did X. You know, that that was a star-like start. Yeah. Um. And I don't know. There's something very understanding. There's something very human about that last line. Hmm. 
that is seeming to be to be compassionate even empathetic to the fact yeah. that we're not stars we're fireflies and if we expect performance star performance um it's going to be hard for us <laughs> yeah i like how you set the scene though because you those first two lines here come you can just see him sitting there or walking or yeah. wherever he is Yes. Here come real stars to fill the upper skies. And here on earth come emulating flies. And then he gets into the bit about the flies. Yeah. But it yeah. I mean it's it's so simple it, but so vivid. It is. And even as you're reading it, I'm remembering that part of what's happening in the poem is that it's happening. Here come. Come. Yeah. You know, yeah. he even says come twice. They're they're coming out the way they do. I mean, isn't that exactly what happens with stars and fireflies, the way that we perceive them? Yeah. You know, they they begin to emerge. Like, you see the first one, and it's still kind of dusk. And then suddenly it's dark, and suddenly you begin seeing all these twinkles, you know? And the stars, likewise, we know that they're not really coming out to fill the upper skies. They're there. But that's how we perceive them coming. Mm. And so it's just such a human angle that... Yeah is the mind in process in a sense. And it's, you mentioned the compassion at the end because it is compassionate and the stuff about that though they never equal stars in size and they were never really stars at heart. It's not condescending in a sense. Like he, he, it's here come the fly here and here on earth come, come emulating flies. And he's, he's praising them in a sense because they, the first time I read it, the first time I heard it from you, I thought, not, not that it was condescending, but that it was, um, that it was kind of, he, it was kind of sad in a sense. That well, he was that sad tired. that they weren't able to achieve that. Yeah. They weren't able to maintain that. That, that, that. that it's a poem about how all things pass away, right? And so it's kind of sad in a sense. Yes. <clears throat> but he, he, you know, even when he says they were never really stars at heart, or though they never equal stars in size, I flipped those lines up just there, but um, it wasn't that they're, it's just that they weren't, they didn't equal in size. It wasn't that they're not valuable. They just, mm-hmm. They're not the same size. Or mm-hmm. they were never really stars at heart. It's not that they weren't valuable. They just, and they're, it's interesting that he said they were, he didn't just say they were never really stars. They were never really stars at heart. Something about within the, the heart of these fireflies, they're not stars. Yes. And I wonder, <clears throat> I wonder what he's doing there. That's the, that's what I'm going to think about for a while. Oh, I love that you're asking that question. I mean, immediately it strikes me that when he says at heart, he's partly saying they didn't aspire mm. to it, and partly saying at nature, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and um, I mean, this is a bigger question, but I'm going to say it just because. Um, I often get this question of how, at what point do you start over-interpreting a poem? Yeah, you're right. Um, So what I immediately think about is um, the whole concept of theosis, of um, human beings who have a spark of God in them, taking on God and becoming God in the process of participating with God and being close to God. Mm -hmm. Um, That Christian concept from the East, it, it suggests that to me. Now, was Frost suggesting that? We don't know. All we know is that he created the groundwork 
and he created the category. And this is what I mean about him being a symbolic thinker. And I think symbolic thinkers give you a lot of room to fill in the category. So he created that category of um, of something grand and lofty and high and esoteric, and then something small and imitative with a spark of what that big thing has in it. Hmm. Um, and so my um, particular that is theological, that's filling that category that he created, I'm not suggesting that he was thinking about that at all, but I do think that he made to make room for me to think about it. Hmm. So I think it would be wrong to say, well, Frost means, Frost is talking about theosis. He's yeah. probably not. Yeah. But he makes room and he creates categorically and metaphorically room for me to think about that. Mm. And I think that's another addendum to what you were saying about how poems think and how metaphors think. Mm. They help us think. They open up our brain. And now if I think about it a little more, I'm going to say, well, actually, Theosis is saying something different. Because Frost is actually saying, no, those are fireflies. Those are stars. They're different. They didn't necessarily want to be the same thing. Mm. Um, whereas, now, we can get in and like talk about all the fine parts of the theological thing, which wouldn't serve what we're doing here. Yeah. You could make the argument either way that Theosis does or does not fit this category. Right. So so then a great poem, the difference between a great poem and a mediocre poem, yes. is it that that through the metaphors and through the language, it's opening itself up to be a vehicle for contemplation um, about itself, but also about anything? I love that vehicle of contemplation. And I would just add to that a vehicle of contemplation for many people. And I think that lesser poems, and I put the poems that I write into this category, um, it, only a few people can use them to contemplate. Um, but right. it's one that invites many in because it's just particular enough and just universal enough that lots can fit, you mm. know, lots of thought, lots of people. Lots yeah. of imaginations can dwell there. And it doesn't have to be a complicated poem to do that. It does not. This is a perfect example. Yeah, there's a, one of my favorite Wendell Berry poems is maybe six lines long. And I've, we have, my wife and I actually had it on our wedding favors. We gave bookmarks out that had it on it. Oh. And so I've thought about it. I don't know if I thought about it every day, but I think about it all the time. And it's very simple, but it's, you know... Yeah. It's had, thing, it's had things in there for me to think about, about marriage and about parenting and about poetry and about life in general for, I don't know, what, seven years now? And it doesn't need to be complicated to do that. What's that? Which poem? Oh, it's called Whatever Happens. Okay. I'm writing it down. I'm going to go look it up. <clears throat> I can recite it I for you if you want. I love that you have that blessing. Um, yeah, recite it for us. All right, see if I get it wrong. I'm going to get it wrong now that I said I can do it. I'm sorry. <clears throat> it goes, um, whatever happens, those who have learned to love one another have made it to the lasting world and will never leave, whatever happens. And so it's a very simple poem, even from a construction standpoint. Yes. It's very simple. And, of course, part of it's being meaningful to me is the, the context in which we came, I came to it and that my wife yeah. and I had it as a part of our wedding and it's a big part of our relationship, but it's also, you know, I can tell it's a good poem because I spent six years thinking about it. Yes. I didn't, I haven't exhausted, I haven't exhausted it. 
Um, and I spent, you know, I presented it to a class. We talked about it for an hour and didn't even get close to, you know, we, I think we talked about the words, whatever happens for the whole time. <laughs> That's beautiful. I'm sure that would be so important to Wendell Berry to hear that because um, it's gone beyond him, you know, mm. and that's the hope. That's the idea. And and I would just put a footnote on what you're saying. Um, you're, what people bring to the poem um, matters so much. You know, if, if you're using that poem for your wedding or if you're reading a poem in the midst of dying, um, or, you know, that knowledge of your life that you bring is a form of interpretation. Mm-hmm. It's not the only one, mm-hmm. but it's a very valid form of interpretation. Poems are human. Mm. And I think that's one thing that we also have to let people do. I mean, as I was saying, you have to separate what the poet made and then what you're adding to it, what's helping you, what's your lens and it's helpful to know the difference between those two things. Yeah. But you don't have to keep your lens out of it. And I think that when we teach poems, we have to let people dream inside them. Hmm. I like it's that. important I like for them to know that they're adding to it. But why not? Is that what it's for? Like. Yeah. Adding to the life of the poem. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then as the teachers, we need to leave room for our students to... To, yeah, that's good. I'm just going to leave it at what you said, to, to dream within the poem. That's that's great. <clears throat> Say that again, how you said it. I don't know if I can. <laughs> <laughs> I ruined it. You said it, you said it beautifully. Um, well, you, well have I, a meet, you have a meeting to go to soon. Week. What's that? David, I wish we could do this every week. Just talk about a poem together. Well, we should try to do it more. We should try to do it periodically anyway. What's okay. that? Every quarter. Okay. I, deal. I'll shake your hand across Skype. <laughs> Maybe people would like that even more, you know, than abstract talk. Because I certainly like it. I mean, I feel like I learned so much from you, even in terms of the way you said things and the way you kind of paraphrased things. Um, that was so, made me alive to an idea that I've known again. Well, let's put the question to our listeners then. If you would like us to do, you know, something like that, we'd, we'll do it. Um, we'll get some feedback and maybe people can recommend some poems they'd like us to talk about. Or okay. If okay. People, I'm, sure we can, I'm sure people will send us a very long list of poems and we'll have to whittle it down to one. But um, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It was really good to be with you. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.